is correct. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing a classic fantasy literature, The Chronicles of Prydain. In 1964, Philadelphia-born author Lloyd Alexander published The Book of Three, the first in what would become a five-book high fantasy series aimed at younger readers. The series was inspired by Alexander's experiences in Wales during World War II, where he trained in combat intelligence. There, he fell in love with the Welsh landscape and its ancient mythology, and decided to build a setting around it in which he could tell a classic epic of good and evil, hope and heartbreak, love and loss. In the Book of Three, we meet Taran, a young boy living on the farm of Caer Dalbin in the land of Prydain. Taran's job is assistant pig keeper. He looks after Hen Wen, a pig that can tell the future. But what Taran really wants is a life of adventure and swordsmanship, even though his master, the ancient mystic Dalbin, and the retired soldier, Call, try to persuade him otherwise. One day, Hen Wen escapes, and Taran chases after her into the dark woods, where he encounters the terrifying Horned King, a skull-faced warlord who does the bidding of the evil Aran Deathlord, a figure of evil incarnate who dwells in the westernmost reaches of the land. According to the heroic Prince Gwydion, Prydain's heir apparent, Aran's powers have begun to build once again, and he needs to consult with Hen Wen to find out how to turn back Aran. Aran is also bolstered by the Horned King, their undead servants known as the Cauldron Born, and against all this, Tyron embarks on a quest to retrieve the pig at all costs. Along the way, Taran meets a cast of characters who would go on to accompany him in varying capacities throughout the rest of the series. There is Princess Ilanwi, a young enchantress in training who instantly becomes Taran's foil, friend, and eventual love interest. There is Gurgi, a strange and shaggy man-creature who is both crude and simple and yet tough and loyal. There is Fluter Flam, a local king but also a wandering bard whose tendency to embellish the truth often outshines his finer qualities. And there is the dwarf Doli, a member of the fair folk whose dour exterior hides an earnest desire to confront evil and stand by his friends. Taran discovers the ancient sword Durnwin, escapes the clutches of the sinister witch Ocran, and has an ultimate showdown with the Horned King that very much does not go as planned. When it's all over, Taran returns home a little wiser than before, with Ilanwi and Gurgi in tow, and armed with the notion that even though his adventures are just beginning, perhaps Dalbin and Call were wise after all in suggesting that Taran not be so eager for danger and uncertainty. From there, the series moves on to the Black Cauldron, Taran and Company's efforts to destroy the magical artifact by which Aran creates his undead warriors, known as the Cauldronborn. Book three is the Castle of Lear, where we meet the hapless Prince Rune, and where Taran's feelings for Ilanwi become too powerful for him to ignore. Book four is Taran Wanderer, in which Taran leaves Cairdelbin on an extensive journey to discover the truth about his parentage, so he might find the courage to ask for Ilanwi's hand. And book five is The High King, in which the final showdown against Lord Aran for the fate of Prydain is at hand. The Chronicles of Prydain are aimed at younger readers, and indeed the prose is perfectly suitable for them, although the story serves grown-ups just as well. Although there is danger and death aplenty here, it's written in such a way that the reader is spared no emotional heft, and yet there's no graphic leering at the details. Alexander writes with a remarkably compact style that covers in one paragraph what takes most other writers an entire page, and before you know it, you are laughing and crying and dreading that the end is near. 
The series has thrilled and inspired millions of readers, won the highest awards in children's literature, and has been translated into many different languages. It's paved the way for so many other fantasy series in the years since, and it's a series that often patiently waits on the shelves of middle school libraries everywhere, awaiting the next curious hand to open its covers and begin a journey that, like Taryn's own, will reveal much about what it means to grow up and how the dreams of youth can easily become the folly of adulthood. This series tends to have a pretty big impact on middle schoolers when they read it, and for Gen Xers in particular, it's especially beloved. So let's get into it. With me today is wandering bard and giant cat wrangler, Chris Crenshaw. Nevertheless, a flam to the rescue. <laughs> Grower of turnips and gatherer of apples, Tom Hespos. It's all fun and games until your pig takes off into the woods. <laughs> and coming all the way from Caradalbin, Joe Pace. In the end, only the bards knew the truth of it. Oh, oh dude, you're killing me right off the bat, man. All right, everyone, welcome. All right, so to get started here, Tom, I'd like to hand that floor over to you because you've got a great story about not just this, these books, but who they're aimed at and how the books of, of childhood can become the books of adulthood. So why don't you take it away? Sure. I mean, this was a series of books that was actually not a part of my childhood. I had no idea that they even existed until Chris told me about them. And what had happened was, uh, you know, I had been doing daddy story time for a while with my three children. My daughter, Kate, in particular, she was, you know, around seven or eight and, you know, was right at the prime age where I started enjoying a lot of the stories that we love to geek out over. So uh, we started doing, you know, like daddy story time. And then, you know, the kids would just sort of gather around in the living room and I would crack open a book and we we'd do our thing. So, you know, they had become exposed to the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings and, you know, Harry Potter and, and a bunch of other things, you know, that I loved as a kid and, you know, that came later. But like, I, I just hit a brick wall at one point. I'm like, I'm kind of like out of stuff to read to them. And, and that's when I came to you guys and Chris was like Chronicles of Perdane. And I'm like, I've never even heard of this. It, it just, it, it was like something that like, I guess they just maybe didn't get for my middle school, I, but uh, I never saw it on the <laughs> shelf. But uh, you know, then Chris said to me, well, you've heard of the black cauldron, right? And I'm like, well, wasn't there this like Disney movie that kind of never went anywhere. And I don't know, but uh, it sounds, sounds to me like, you know, fan folks in the fandom uh, of the Chronicles of Perdane, like don't really think that that matches very well with the book. I never no. saw the movie. So, uh, you know, the like, movie I, did so poorly that it, that Disney didn't, they, Disney waited a ten, 10 whole years before they put it on video. <laughs> they were like, yeah. so they embarrassed. Do, they do it. Island. We okay. The rest of it is garbage. Yeah. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's not that great. But yeah, so so you know this this became a thing that I, I read to my kids when I'd be doing say you know Tolkien or, or whatever. You know, I would notice, of course, you know, the youngest, sometimes he just wouldn't be fully engaged and he'd wander off or something like that. You know, Tolkien's pretty dense. Kate was intrigued by most of it. But like, I remember like we were in the middle of reading these and we ended up going on like vacation to the happiest place on earth, of course, Disney World. And Kate, like being upset <laughs> as we were putting her to bed that there wasn't daddy story time because I forgot to bring the book with me. I'm like, we're going to Disney World. We're not going to have time for reading books. This is going to be all, you know, running around and trying to get Star Wars training and then, you know, going to the, the jungle cruise and all that stuff. We're not going to have time for this. But she, she looked at me and she was like, Daddy, I really want to know what happened to Taryn. She never 
had said that about any of the Tolkien stuff, like even Harry yeah. Potter, like there was no urgency to sort of get to the next chapter with yeah. you know, the Chronicles. I, I think it was a little bit different. Like they were really eager to, to figure out the next thing that happened. The way that Alexander gets a lot of this information across, I know it's written for like younger folks, but like it is also, I think, pretty information dense, but it doesn't make your brain do like the huge heavy lifting like Tolkien does. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why it really just, you know, appealed to Kate at that age. I mean, she couldn't have been more than eight years old, like when we covered this stuff. So, but she was really, really digging it and really into the story. And, you know, I just found it really funny that like in the middle of the happiest place on earth where we're going to go the next day <laughs> and just, you know, knock ourselves out until we can't walk anymore. And you know, yeah, she's like, yeah. well, what's going on with Taryn? <laughs> I just thought, you know, that that makes me cool happy. Work. You know, I know right? that, like, I, you know, I certainly didn't even know existed until Chris told me about it. So thank you, yeah. Chris for turning me on to my this. pleasure it really enjoyed it <laughs> now tom did your daughter have any particular favorites in the series or was she just sort of she just sort of like in for a penny in for a pound and was a sort of end of the entire the the, the thing as an, as an entirety oh she was all in but that's not to say that she didn't have her favorites and th this is interesting like i she was big into gurgi and <laughs> yeah like, how can you not be the description of gurgi like going through like when you initially encounter him like it's like they just stopped just short of calling him monstrous. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, he's hairy and dirty and just about the least appealing thing. He immediately like scrapes and tries to, you know, oh, don't hit me, you know, that, those kinds of things. <laughs> and he just comes across as not like the most lovable guy in the world, but yet, yeah. you know, over the course of it proves to be probably the most loyal character in the whole. He's the original Hufflepuff. Yeah. Yeah. When I was yeah. seven or eight or nine reading these, Gurgi to me was Grover from Sesame Street. Like, 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 the Muppet. Like, like that's how I saw him when I first read these when I was a kid. And to this day, when I read them to my kids, when I've like, you know, rereading them, like I, I have a really hard time not seeing him as Grover, which is you, like ridiculous. You remember right? what a Monchichi is from when we were kids? <laughs> you go. That's how I pictured him, but like left yeah. on the floor of a New York City taxi cab for a couple of weeks. That's how I pictured him. I, I, I always pictured him as... As Captain Caveman with just a little bit of Gollum. <laughs> yes, that's fantastic. That little, yeah, but 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 not that not that confident, right? Like there's a little bit the insecurity right. of Gurgi. Yeah, like there's there's that beauty of yeah. He, he's got like, he's got the Gollum cringe. Yeah, yeah, but but he also like the beauty of Gurgi. I think uh, you know when they go to Medwin's Valley and Medwin says like he's lost the wisdom of the animals and not yet gained the wisdom of humanity. Like he's in between. Yeah. The, like like Gergi, this poor bastard. Like he he's he's so trapped and he yeah, doesn't know what yeah. he is. It's oh god, it's so beautiful. See now, now for me, the visual was really guided by the movie version of of, of the Black Cauldron, right? Where Gergi is just like fully shaggy and all that. And it's not like it's the greatest thing. It's just what's in my head because I remember seeing it when I was a kid. I think I saw the Black Cauldron before I ever read the books. And so as a kid, I actually quite liked the movie. And then I and I read the books. I'm like, oh wow, this is way different. I had this fixed image of what Gergi looks like, but as I was reading the series i wasn't really guiding by what he looked like it was more like what he smelled like because yeah. <laughs> alexander makes a couple of wisecracks in the first couple of books like just how rank gurgi tends to be right? wolfhound smell yeah and i'm thinking like i just remember yeah. like all like 
wet matted dog fur experiences and just how it's just so pungent and <laughs> just you can't get that smell out of your head like that's gurgy on a good day you know and then the like beauty of these books is reading them aloud to your children as tom has talked about and so you do voices yeah i, I know I, I know i did and i'm sure tom did too and all of you have but so yeah. gurgy mm, mm, <laughs> like you know like gurgy yeah. has this that's this voice and that that informs what he looks like that's just that's just how it rolls <laughs> rover slash yoda voice yeah exactly it's right in there well you know smacking to this day when when uh my wife and i'll be like skiing with the kids and we'll talk about like oh it's time for crunchings and munchings like for snacks <laughs> like, it's one of these things that like sneaks into the vernacular and like oh dad brings out the wallet of like you know tasteless granola like oh man <laughs> no, the, the, the dry no one, you know no jerky this, that he's got in there the magic yeah, artifact you leave daddy alone this wallet of food <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his, his wallet. What I love is he's got this wallet of endless food, right? So he can gorge himself, but it doesn't really taste that great, you know. It's 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 like it's probably it's, a good thing. It's probably a good thing. It's, <laughs> it's a bit like being in purgatory, though, right? All the food you can handle, none of it will you enjoy. Oh, well, all right. But you, but I love you know, it you know all that all, all that Gurgi really wants with that wallet is to share from it. Yes. Right? You don't right? see him like completely gorging and walking around with like a spherical tummy. He's just always like, no, no, guys, you can. No, you but can he have. like reaches into it. Like, I love that there's there's yeah. one aside that Alexander provides, and I don't remember which book it's in, where Gurgi's like kind of like, like desultorily like reaching into it and kind of munching out of it. Like, just kind of like taking snacks, doing his thing. <laughs> like a, like, like like a bag of road chips, trip. whatever, you know, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Alexander is such a master of the narrative device that he puts that in there to be like, yeah, I get it. They're going on these like, weeks long journeys into the wilderness and I'm not interested in the rations argument from D and D. So here you go. Here's the wallet that Gurgi gets. So like they can eat like it's fine. Belt of food. And Don't there's always plenty of water in track of rations. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's got the sea rats in his pocket. He's good to go. Now, Tom, how long did it take to read the entire series to your kids? The books are a fairly quick read to be honest, but Reading them aloud is a bit of a, a bit of an investment. So, how long did it take you to to go through the whole series? If you don't mind, I talking would aim about it. for like three to five chapters a night. You know, and, and we didn't read every single night. You know, because there's usually stuff going on. But you know, sure. but four nights a week, I would say. So yeah, <laughs> it took these are such beautiful things to read to your children. Like oh I love that. I love that you were able to do that. These yeah, are you know, it was something that my mom always did for me, and. You know, as I get older and my memories get fuzzier, you know, like back to when I was like, you know, yeah. three, four, five years old, like one of the only memories I have left of that is, you know, my mom reading to me in my old house, you know, it was just yeah. uh, something she did for me. I think that just gave me a love of reading. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. like I, I considered that so important that like I wanted to do this several nights a week to yeah. you know, just expose them to some of the things that I loved. It was so, maybe yeah. five years ago that I read these to my kids. And my kids now are, you know, 14, 12. And my 12-year-old today was wandering around and I had taken, I had taken the screens away because I was done. Like they had had all day Saturday and most of today. And like, I was like, enough with the screens. And so my younger son, who's 11, almost 12, was, was sitting there like watching football with me. And he was like looking bored and talking about being bored. So I gave him the book of three. And I was like, read this, take this, go read it. He was like, okay. And I was like, yes. Yes. Another another victim. <laughs> well, Tom, you know, a question I've got for you is that when you're reading these to your kids, was that your first time reading them 
as well. Yeah, it, like because I I'd never right. even heard of them. I had no idea right. that they existed. So you're discovering them oh. as you're reading aloud to your kids. So that's a really interesting experience. I don't, I don't think I've ever had an experience like that where I've gotten into something for the first time as I was projecting it to I don't others, think so you know? either. I mean, that's yeah, how much I, I trust Chris Crenshaw, you know? <laughs> first mistake. i like, that's, I hope there's not a sex yeah. scene in this. Okay. Um. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no. Joe and Chris and I have, have talked backstage quite a bit about how you know, reading this, we would get choked up as we read this. Did you ever have any parts where you're reading this and you had to kind of stop and take a moment because it was just a tough scene? You're like, oh, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, be crying in front of my kids or anything like that. I know there were like, but I mean, that that's been all throughout the things that I've read to them. Well, like I, I, I don't get choked up usually to the point, you know, where I have to stop. I will yeah. pause and I will have, you know, like my throat gets very yeah, like burning <laughs> and I'm like on the verge of something. But yeah, um, yeah. and I know I did with this. I just I confess I mm -hmm. can't remember which scenes, you know, just just put me off, uh, you know, on that path. But uh, oh, yeah, no, no, it's... It, it was, I suspect you know, we could probably very emotional. You know, I think we know what having scene. <laughs> we, you know, just forget all that stuff about Taryn. Was, <sighs> yeah, well, OK, you know, that, that's tough to take. <laughs> Well, like, that that segues right into my moment, actually, which is which, it, which which comes. So that comes in the third book, which is the Castle of Lear. So I gave a, a, a pretty detailed description of what happens in the book of three. And part of that was just because I do think that this series is kind of it's underrepresented as far as like a great fantasy series it just doesn't have the presence that a lot of other series have had over the years. And so and, that, and that's I, a tra that that's not right. Yeah, I, I I agree, and and I would hope that maybe people listening to this podcast who haven't read this series before, are like, oh, you know what? I think I'll check it out because these guys are geeking out over it. And if if the, if so, that would be a great thing. I would love that to happen. But I try to give an idea of what the book of three is about. A to give you a sense of what the you know what the series is about, but also because of the five books, the book of three is definitely the most cookie cutter of all of them. It is just sort of like a bog standard fantasy introduction. And frankly, it's one on one because yeah. well, yeah, because when people talk about the book of three. That one often gets mentioned on like best of fantasy lists. If the Chronicles of Prydain show up at all, it's often for the Book of Three, not for the High King, which won the Newberry Medal, right? Yeah. It's also the one that I would caution people to not judge the series by because it's sure. probably the weakest of the five. It's not bad. You will see shades of Tolkien in this. You will see shades of other classic fantasy. It's like the it's like Joseph Campbell masterclass, right? Just Alexander takes all these fairly classic tropes and concepts he puts them all together in his frame in the book of three and then when we get into the black cauldron and the book of lear like things really take off and i think that's where pranane and these characters really start to come into their own it feels really unique and distinct and different it's got a very particular flavor to it that i just fell really fell in love with the black cauldron and the disney movie really kind of combines the book of three and the black cauldron into a, sing into a single story the book of the black cauldron is iran has this big magical black cauldron and you put dead people in there, and they come out as basically these zombie warriors. And he's just like mass-producing undead warriors to conquer the land. And so Prince Gwydion is like, we got to take care of this cauldron. If we're going to take care of Iran, we got to take care of the cauldron first. You know, Taran and, and, and Gwydion and a bunch of others, they go off on this quest to destroy the cauldron. And it's a really, really great adventure. It's fantastic. There are other characters that we see for the first time. Taran's got this rival in the party who is like, you know, Taran is lowborn and has an uncertain parentage. There's this other guy in the party who is this noble and he's really proud and he's got this kind of hubris about him and the two are just like at loggerheads the whole time and there's just, there's betrayal, there's sacrifice. It's just a terrific, terrific heroic adventure. Alexander often mentions 
in the forwards to these books, how he thinks they could all work as standalone stories, but they're also part of a larger thing. And I think it's more true that they work better as part of a larger thing, but I will say the Black Cauldron it probably does the best of standing alone as its own thing. Yeah, I would have to agree. Yeah, Book of Three and then Black Cauldron are, are very awesome standalones. So, but the but the one I'm going to pull from is the Castle of Lear, which is the third volume. And what happens to the Castle of Lear is our heroes have had two adventures. You know, we've met Princess Ilanwi. You know, she's this strawberry blonde princess who, when we meet her, she's kind of like a captive in in castles in the in Castle Spiral. She's an enchantress in training. She has the possession of this magical little bauble that she brings with her that kind of brings light wherever we go, and. Right off the bat, she's like, all right, Taron, I'm here to rescue you. He's like, you're, you're here to who now the what? She's kind of like on her own wavelength. So at first you kind of think she's got this like Luna Lovegood sort of spaciness going on. But no, it's just more just, it's almost like she's fey touched. You know, like she's just, she's kind of sees things slightly differently. And she's pretty smart and pretty sharp. And very self-confident. She she has all the confidence that, that Taron lacks, but is really cool about it. And like, he tries to, and because Taryn gets headstrong, he tries to push against her and like kind of insert his his opinion on things. She's like, yeah, right, and she just like kind of swats away his nonsense. And like he very quickly realizes that he's got a really great peer in Ilanomi. I mean, she is she is proficient in all the things where he is deficient, and she's a terrific companion. She's super. She's just awesome, right? There, there's there's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful scene after she after Ilanomi rescues Taryn and Fluter from Spiral Castle and Black Cauldron. Yeah. And they're in the, the woods and Tarn and Island, we have one of their fights where she's like, I'm not speaking to you anymore in the whole bit. Mm-hmm. And then and then Tarn says to Fluter, he says, I, I can't make sense out of this girl. Can you? And Fluter says, never mind, we aren't really expected to. Like and I just like <laughs> when I was eight or nine years old, like that landed like a comet into my understanding of girls. Yeah. Like, yeah, you will never understand women. Like, it's okay. You're not supposed yeah. to. Like, yeah. like roll with it. It's all, it's, it's all good. And, and like, yeah, so magic, yeah. when I was eight years old, nine years old, reading these for the first time, I was reading comic books. I was reading, you know, Greek mythology, whatever else. And Island, we was the first fully realized woman, you know, girl, then later woman that I, that I read, right. It deeply informed my understanding of, of girls, of women, of like what's possible out there. The fact that you're going to fight with them and you're going to have mm-hmm. that that push pull relationship, honestly, Island Wee, Daughter of Angarad, and Kitty Pride are like the yeah, two I'll, I'll say stars. My two big literary crushes from that time were Kitty Pride of the X Men and Alanwi, and and Alanwi was just like she was just so Alanwi was my first. Yeah, yes, first. Yeah, the thing is, it's important it to remember, were. like, so these books were written in the '60s, right? But like. There's really not a lot of like dismissive male gaze put towards Alanwi the way Alexander writes Almost it, right? None. No, there um, there is a there is a moment of sexual threat that is very smoothly handled. Very that's smoothly in the handled. High king. Uh, that comes it, that's in the high king. king. It's, it's in the high yeah. king. But, but, but still, it's, oh, it makes me so mad. It's so mad. Though. <laughs> oh. right, you want to jump the page? You're not just, having like, it as a reader. You're not yeah, having yeah, it. Yeah, you're not having it because. But you get invested in the character. But by Lanmu was she was just great because she wasn't taking any crap. She was just like she, she was just fantastic in every every way. I I mean I thought she was an awesome character. And so, in the Castle of Lear, the plot is. Because she's noble born, she's got to basically go off to like royalty finishing school, right? She's been like hanging out with the pig keeper and doing adventures, and that's fantastic. But she's kind of like super tomboy, but she needs to learn how to like do needlecraft and how to gossip at court and all these kinds of things to be a proper lady. 
And she's like, that's some BS, y'all. They're like, well, too bad. You got to go anyway. She's like, oh, come on, man. So she kind of goes under protest to the island of Mona, highborn lady boot camp. And she's like not having a great time. Taryn and the crew kind of come along. And they're like, all right, we're here. You know, and, and initially it's like, we're just here on to be on the island. And that's when you meet, uh, you know, Prince Rune, who is the heir of the island. And he's he's just hopeless, right? He's just, he's a nice guy. He's the guy. Jonah Hill of the whole thing. Yeah, yeah he's, right. a, he's a nice guy, but he's just, he's all thumbs with everything. He's such a, a mess. But he's the one lined up to marry Ailanwi, you know, and Taryn knows it. Seeing this, he suddenly is confronted with the fact that he's caught the feels for Ailanwi in a big way. And he knows that there's somebody threatening this in a way that he can't counter. And it's kind of freaking him out, right? And and you feel that when you're reading the book. And as a as a adolescent boy, I was, I felt his pain so keenly in this book. I'm like, oh my God. You didn't and you can't hate Rune. He's not a bad guy. He's a no, great it's the guy. The girl next door like met a guy in college and you're like, wait a minute, hold on. Yeah. What? No. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. At the same time, you're like, oh man, poor Taryn. Adventure ensues. The Queen Ocran shows up again. She's ensorceling people towards the end of the book. And by the way, I'm just gonna jump in. There will be spoilers in this conversation, everybody. So these books are like more than 60 years old. So the statute of limitations has expired. However, if you haven't if read you them want... yet, what are you doing with your life? Well, look, if you want to read these books and you haven't read them yet and you don't want us to spoil it, you may just want to pause this podcast and then go read them and then come back. It'll just take you like a day or two to, to, to power through them. The real quality of these books is not in the initial reveal of its details. It's really in the quality of the writing in the spell that the whole narrative weaves and just being with these characters in the earned moments that when people read them again and again, they lose none of their potency. So you can listen to spoilers and it's really not going to ruin anything for you. But having said that, we, we progress. Ailanwi has been captured by Akron. Akron put a spell on her because she's trying to basically control Ailanwi to, to gain magic secrets and rule Prudain. The action has moved to this small little castle on this rock in the middle of the water, right? Heracalur. And Taryn is like, well, you know, everybody's doing their own hero stuff. He's like, I'm going to go up the tower and I'm going to get Ailanwi. He gets into the tower, right? There, there she is, right? Except there's not that flicker of recognition in her eyes that there ought to be because there's a spell on her. And she has, by magical means, she's completely forgotten who Taryn is. He's trying to, you know, recount their adventures together in hopes that there'll be some kind of recognition that she'll remember who she is and also remember who he is. Because he's he's trying to build the courage to express to her how he feels. And so this the section happens and, and when I read this, it just it completely it completely bowled me over. Ilanwi and, and Taryn are talking and she goes, I wanted to learn the trees, Ilanwi went on. You must learn them anew every year, she said, for they are always different. And in the dream I'd gone to the last branch. It was no dream, Taryn urged, but the life you know, your own life, not a shadow that vanishes in the sun. Indeed, you went to the highest branch. It snapped as I feared it would. How should anyone know someone else's dream, said Ilanwi, as though speaking to herself. Yes, it broke, and I was falling. There was someone below who caught me. Could it have been an assistant pig keeper? I wonder what became of him. He is here now. Taryn said quietly. He has long sought you, and in ways even he himself did not know. Now that he has found you, can you not find your path back to him? Ilanmi rose to her feet. Her eyes flickered, and for the first time, a light shone in them. Taryn held out his hands to her. She hesitated, then took a step forward. But even as she moved to him, her glance turned shallow, and the light died. It is a dream. No more than that, she whispered and turned away. <sighs> that is so much like, right? I am not a Cyclops oh guy. I am, not a psych, I am not a Cyclops guy. 
that is that is that is a metric ton of cyclops dark phoenix right there that that, that is what that is like let my love bring you back there is honestly one of the big mile markers for great fiction great literature is when characters take they take that opportunity to say for the first time i love you to somebody and what an I love you that was. I mean, I mean, it just it's, he doesn't have the words, but he comes up with some really fantastic ones. He says I love you in a way he means, and it just it it's like water on the rocks, and it's not his fault. And you're just like, oh man, and like, it's, and he never quite captures that courage again. To be honest, I mean, there there is it's a long, know, long time. It's, it's a long yeah. time, but you know, but but it's like it just it. I remember as a kid that really killed me, and reading it as an adult, it just. It brought tears to my eyes when I was reading it. It brings tears to my eyes every time I read it aloud. The romance between Taryn and Ilanwi, it's not particularly cookie cutter. It's got these wonderful earned moments in it. I love how Taryn grows. I love how Ilanwi grows. I love how they kind of orbit each other. And even though, like, you kind of know, well, they're going to get together, but you're just like, but how? Like, and you just know that it's going to come in a way that feels right. And that, and that really works. And so I, I, I'm in it. I, I'm so into it. And this scene just, breaks my freaking heart <laughs> it just, it's, it's probably one of the it's th- this series breaks my heart numerous times but that one really breaks it, like over its knee psh, smithereens psh, puts it in the grinder i mean there's nothing left of me by the time i'm done with that one you know how it makes me feel it's it's like uh it's like the scene in jackson's lord of the rings where frodo says to sam go away you can't help me yeah you know, it, that, it, yeah it, 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 i hate that scene because Casting yeah. out love, but but yeah. but it, yeah. it makes me feel exactly like this this scene did. Like, yeah, yeah. no, you, well, you don't mean it. So and you, I, in the characters and their relationship to one another, and then just to yeah. see it like it's basically erased. You know, like you're you're starting from square yeah. one, and like yeah. you're so invested in it that that's exactly the last thing that you want to see happen. For a long time, this this book was essentially the end of the series for me. Because I read the Book of Three, Black Cauldron, and the Castle of Lear n- several times when I was in middle school. But Terran Wanderer was always missing. I think this, that copy was lost or whatever. I always kind of kept holding out, hoping it's going to be around, and never was. They had the High King. I grabbed it one time, like, I'm tired of waiting. And I just sort of flipped through it at home. I was like, nope. I don't know. But I, it's as if I never read it. So I was really curious to see what happened. And, and, and rereading it, it was like reading it for the first time. And I so fell in love with this as I was reading it. But... When I got that scene, I had no idea how this is going to get resolved or when or what. or I just – that pain I felt the scene. I'm like, I hope he doesn't make me carry this for a whole book or more because I don't know if I can handle it. You know, <laughs> I just, like, like I need I need some kind of resolution a little sooner than this, Mr. Until. Alexander, because you're going to kill me here, you know. I will, I will tell you, Bill, that like my relationship with my, with my first wife stems from our childhood, from like junior high and high school. And then like, there was, there was some of that. There was some of this, like, do you recognize me? Do you know me? Like, where's our love going to go? And and, and that, like, and even to this day, when I talk to my first wife, who's both of us are remarried and perfectly happy with our subsequent marriages, that component of moving from adolescence into something more and the, and the terror of that Mm -hmm. and, and the uncertainty of that. And it was, it was very real. Yeah. And, and even now, like I, I, I talked to her, I, I reached out to her and said, you know, we're going to talk about Perdane and we're going to talk about Tarn and I when we, 
And she said, yeah, yeah, Taran's an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's true, he is. Yeah. And, uh, but I never read this series to her. I read it yeah. to, my, to my second wife, my, my wife, yeah. Sarah. Taran and Island Weave's relationship is so textured and so real. And it, it, it stems from the fact that both of them are individually so well-drawn and their relationship isn't based upon some falsehood of, of need. It's based upon two individual real creatures who, who f- discover each other. Yeah. And who find and, they can count on each other. Yes. Yes. And, and they both yes. have strength independent of each other. Yeah. Absolutely. And Island Louise, Island Louise is a pillar. She's, she, she's better than Princess Leia. There, I said oh, it. Oh, no question. <laughs> oh, Chris, I'm right there for it. Island we Island we is like takes no prisoners. She takes no BS. Like she wields she a spear. Is, yeah. Man, she's an independent creature who yeah. who loves Tara not because she needs him, but because she wants him. And yeah. and that is so powerful and so strong that I still to this day, as a forty something year old man, adore that about her. I love that first fight that they had, you know, to go back to that, Joe. Like, <laughs> I have a theory that she's actually from Long Island because whatsoever, like Taryn basically after the castle collapses and they're like, oh my God, what are you, you know, like all he wants to just be done with her. He's, he's, yeah, he's like, like you right, rescued the wrong friend. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> he scatterbrained. He, he, you know, he tries to yeah. blame Woody and they insult each other all the time. On her. Yeah, and she's not having any of it. She's like, no. you stupid pig keeper. Like, <laughs> I did everything you said. I rescued yeah. the guy you told me in the next cell. All right, it's not the guy you wanted, but you know, all right, I did, I did it. I got yeah. your horse. I did everything. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah no. all by myself. Yeah. where do you get off blaming me? Like, <laughs> I, I, but she I, calls I, him pig keeper. Throughout the fifth book, she keeps saying, like, no one would expect that of just a pig keeper, but you do amazingly well for <laughs> someone the, of your station. She, is the, she has a PhD in backhanded compliments. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just astonishing. Uh, she, I'm sure you're, and, you're the best one in all of Pride Aid, but I, yeah, of course, I don't know how many there would be. Yeah, <laughs> she's, she's so dis- Her wit is so disarming. The other thing I love is that is all, right off the bat – Taryn is like, oh, she's just like all scatterbrained. Like he tries to put her in this like preconceived notion of like, oh, she's just a scatterbrained girl or whatever. And then instantly she diffuses that by being super smart, super resourceful, and she keeps receipts on everything. Like she's just like, like he's like, <laughs> he's just like, you will never win an argument with her because she's got every piece of evidence. I mean, that's just the way she's like mine like a steel trap. And it's just she's just an awesome character. I just love her. In that passage I read. I mean, look at the word choice and it's the way the sentences flow. What I was really struck by was just Alexander's style, his pro style. And Tom, you were saying how like Tolkien can be a little little hard to just get into, like that the language can be not as accessible. He writes as if he's writing from a bygone century. Yeah. A, a lot of his prose sounds like it's from a, a much older age, and yet it's not it's not wrapped up in the trappings of any kind of language or word choice that make it hard for the modern reader to understand. You have immediate fluency in what he's saying. Yes. Right? I, I don't really recall having read anything else that kind of mastered both those things so so well. And it really, it's got this it really simple me. simple formality to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tar- Tarin says shall all the time. 
you know so just, yeah. just things like that are yeah. you know th that that takes you to another place without making it hard to understand you know yeah, absolutely like, I, I have i have i have deep recollection of being like in sixth and seventh grade and thinking that words like terry and haste should have been part of my vocabulary yeah and <laughs> make haste laughing at me and making fun of me because i used those words and i'm like no what like those are those are words i'm supposed to use them <laughs> Joe, but, how many times did the ball bounce? Thrice. Right? Oh, come on, man. Thrice. <laughs> Zounds, <But>, fellow. Zounds. <laughs> but the beauty of Island is that Alexander makes her competent without making her a Mary Sue. Like, she's not, she's not perfect. She has her own mistakes. She uh, does things wrong, and she's, she gets things misplaced. Her and Taran are basically like moonlighting. If for anybody... <laughs> <laughs> right like there's yeah. there's this there's almost a romantic comedy like brilliance to how they're written yeah. because they clash and both of them come at it from a very honest place i love their relationship it's a big part of the series i love that particular that particular moment in it because it kind of draws the in castle of lear just because it, it kind of brings to sharp relief everything i love about it and everything that i feared i was going to lose as a observer of that relationship you know and, and so it's really bill you know you know you know the uh, Castle of Lear is the only moment where you think that Tarn and Island we might not happen. Might not happen. I know. And for the rest of it, the other four books out of it, it's a foregone conclusion. But you 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 create not a to Tarn, it's tension. Not. Yeah. So Tarn does not not to Tarn. It isn't. Well, that no, but to the reader it is. Like we get it. We we know. We know where it's headed. So 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 at the end of Castle Lear. Right, it brings us into Taran Wanderer, which is the fourth book, right, oh. and which is a whole other kind of kettle fish. And Chris, I'm going to hand things over to you because I know your moment was going to be about this book, and this is kind of like in the aftermath of all the things we learn in Castle of Lear, it sets up Taran Wanderer, which is a, a really remarkable chapter in the story. So, Chris, why don't you talk about that that book and and what are, what are you know some of the big high points you took you took from it? Bill, I'm really happy that we closed uh the castle of lear talking about Ilanwe because that's how i want to start talking about this book in his foreword lloyd alexander says look sorry y'all but Ilanwe's not in this one and 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 he, he goes on to say that he's gotten a ton of Ilanwe fan mail from girls yeah. um and, and it's not exactly a triumph or representation but Ilanwe is in a way, she's even the center of this book, even though she doesn't even appear. She is always on Tarin's mind, yeah. always. Yeah. So, you know, taken as a whole, the Chronicles of Perdane are, are a, a, a Bildungsroman, yeah. which is uh, an obviously German word, meaning uh, learning romance, or more current terms, a uh, novel of education. It's the story of a young person's growth and education, yeah. particularly their moral yeah. education. Yeah. Like, you uh, might Jane... say it's a coming-of-age story. Yeah, Jane Eyre, David Copperfield, Huck Finn, Catcher in the Ride, Kill a Mockingbird, Dune, yeah. Ender's Game, Star Wars, Avatar the Last Airbender, Naruto. Uh, keep going. I mean, you know, th th these these are really, it, it's a weird name, but they're very common, uh, sure. you know, in, in the literature that we love. And uh, Terra and Wanderer is in itself sort of an inset picaresque building roman in which Taran takes up a quest that he thinks is about finding his, his parents, but it's really about finding his place in the world. So he's been he's been missing Ilanwi, who's off at Dinas Ridden and learning to be a, a princess. He wants to marry her, but you know, he's afraid that, you know, now that she's got this position 
being held out to her you know he's got nothing but a pig pen to offer her Dalben can't tell him who his parents are only how he found him and and he doesn't even tell him that beach. so in his first adventure here you know the, this is a picaresque book you know so it's a, a series of episodes in his first adventure he goes off to see ordu or when an orgach from the black cauldron these are you know norn figures the um, the three, fates. yeah the fates. you know Tarin can't afford the kind of payment they'd want for hunting this kind of information down but they do tell him of the mirror of lunette which is said to show the true self of any person who looks into it ordu also tells him that he's obviously brave as nobody nobody has ever come to them twice can you scratch? <laughs> but can you ever. scratch for your own worms? Yes, but she also asks him if the darling Robin has ever scratched for his own worms. That's bravery of another sort. Tarin goes off, and and he thinks that this quest for the the mirror of Lunette is what he's supposed to be doing. He he stops by King Smoit's uh, castle, uh, where he Smoit? gets into. My body and blood. King, he's King my Smoit. <laughs> my body and blood. He's like Volstag, the voluminous. Yeah, you know, he's, he's he is very much Volstag. He's yeah, just, there's no he's question. Just a sack of human appetite. Somehow, <laughs> somehow wrapped in virtue. You know? <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I won't tell you the whole story. I mean, you know, that's just spoiling it. But you know, Tarin through this complicated adventure shows some real wisdom and mm-hmm. and, and the right kind of concern. Yeah. When he tells Smoit about what he's up to, it's like, look, man, who gives a crap who your parents are? I'll adopt you. I need I need somebody to be king after me. Yeah. And that's, and that's like that's like Torrance. That, that's that's, that's Torrance's dream. That's the golden right? ticket. Like, yeah. yeah. Now you're your royal blood, go marry Island We here it is. Like go, there you go. make it happen. And, and he says no. Because he's because... an idiot. Well, because he's a little bit, but no, it's no, because no, he no, no. because he no, doesn't know his birth, which he continues to mistake for his identity. But also because his his self respect kind of demands that he not abandon you know his chosen task at the first opportunity. King, right, King of Catafor, Tyron cried, his heart leaped. What need to seek the mirror when he could offer Ilanmi a royal throne, the proudest gift he could ever lay at her feet? Taryn, King of Caffador, Caffador. The words rang more sweetly in his ears than Taran, assistant pig keeper. Yet suddenly his joy turned cold. While Ilanui might honor his rank, could she respect him for abandoning his quest before it had even begun? Could he respect himself? Oh! But that's not right. about Ilanui. That's about him. Like he doesn't care. Like like Ilanui wouldn't care. That's about this him. This is true. Right. This is true. Okay, Ilanui right. wouldn't care. But but he he's that's still coming him. from the point of view. But, he, but he, there's a theme of integrity here. If I'm going to set rules for myself, I need to live by those rules, right? And even when they're hard or they, they seem a little silly, like and he doesn't put himself through any particular tortures that are especially stupid. He's just like, but you know, this is I have to. He's like, I can't do any of this if I don't respect myself first. Right. And I need Tarn to do this is to that guy myself, who has to you know? win Mario at the hardest level. <laughs> right. I mean, that, I'm just casual. Otherwise, so he does. He does though. He tells Smoit, yeah. you know, look, if I if I go off and find out I'm of noble blood, I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Seriously. So you know, oh, we'll then, for it's okay. Then he he has an encounter with the wizard Morda, uh, who, who had just... previously had con- con- yeah. contact with Glue. Turns out there turns out spoilers. He has real story Seriously, connections. Seriously, it's fifty years old, dude. It's just but uh, well, I mean, it's just too big. It, yeah, yeah, it's too big. Go on. Um, anyway, Tarin and his companions defeat this guy, and and you know he he has become so powerful 
uh, through the use of this magic pendant that turns out to have belonged to Ilanwi's mother, that he was he was like able to like transform the fair folk themselves, and and like he was a real threat to their realm. So yeah. by doing this, Taran has done you know this enormous service to the fair folk who you know Dolly Dolly says, look, we're not gonna forget this, brother. <laughs> Yeah. And it's, it's really weird because there's this moment where Taran's got this pendant and, and he, he thinks, you know, oh, my God, I could be a wizard. I could be a great wizard. Ilanwi would love me then. It is kind of interesting to me that he never even considers giving it to Ilanwi, which would be not a little bit, not even a little bit reasonable. Yeah. Doesn't even consider it. Nope. He gives it to the fair folk who made it and yeah. that ensures their ongoing safety. So all of his decisions have consequences in this book. Yeah, absolutely. The, absolutely. Then, then he, he he meets up with Dorath, a, a bullying brigand who, who beats him up and takes his sword. The pleasure is in the taking. Oh, my God. I wanted to yeah. punch a book so bad. <laughs> you know, Tar- Tarn deals with it really maturely. You he know? does. He, he, he's like, look, man, better I lose that sword than my life yeah. or yours, yeah. Gurgi. T- the Tarn and Tarn Wander is a million years away from the headstrong kid at the very beginning of Book of Three. Yeah, who has no, he no grows clue up. what sword fighting is. Like, he's he yeah. It, seeing him growing up in this book, like he's grown up a lot by the time Tarn Wander he grows starts. up a lot more than even, Harry Potter ever. Yeah, does. but even in this yeah. book, he's growing up. It's so great to see that. For me. These books, I think I first encountered them in eight. I'd read The Hobbit before I read this, but they, these were like a roadmap to growing up to me. Yeah, you know, percent. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I'm so fond of Alanwi because you know what, a girl can I think find the same thing in these books. Yes, not just yes. in Alanwi, but in Tar. Yeah. I mean, you know, like both of these these characters are absolutely to be admired and and emulated even. Yeah. Then Tarn meets uh, this lame shepherd named Craddock. Uh, he lives oh. on this in this rundown cottage on really poor land. This section was heartbreaking. Oh my! He God. claims Ugh. to be Tarn's father. I know. And 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 he explains that you know his pride and wanting to stay in this you know in his land had they cost Tarn's mother her life. She got ill and died you know alone on this on this farm. And and even Tarn had nearly died before Dalbin came to his door. And took Tarn from him. This is a lie. <laughs> it's all true. Yeah. And that yeah. that is a spoiler. I do not mind. But you know, Tarn is is heartbroken to find his parentage so humble and, and yeah. even in his eyes kind of wicked. But yeah. he immediately takes responsibility for Craddock. He stays for you know several months repairing the cottage, improving the yeah. land, and preparing for winter. Then Craddock has this fall. Uh, you know, during a snowstorm and you know, he's in a position where it's essentially impossible for Tarn to rescue him and and Tarn has this moment where nobody will ever know if I just walk away I'm free this doesn't have to be my life yeah and he blows the horn and he blows the horn he he, he blows the horn that Ilan we gave him it's it's got he one last call yeah, yeah, yeah. one a, last a, call a one Fairful use magic game. item and he burns yes. it yes he burns it for Craddock like oh man because that's who Tarn is he, yeah. yes he uses that wish to or to try to save the life of the man who had done him I mean such an enormous wrong it, it's, it's almost him. inconceivable you know how awful what that man did to him was and and Tarin makes the right decision, and, and integrity. And then you know, Craddock dies anyway. Yeah, doesn't matter. And, and that is heartbreaking. I mean, we want to feel happy that Tarin isn't stuck in that little valley, but there's a surprising sense of loss in the scene. There you is, know? Yeah. And, and 
and, and you know, Tarin standing there on that ledge with his putative father, his father tells him, look, I'm not your dad. Leave me. Save yourself. And, and Tarin doesn't do it. He won't do it. And he judges himself so harshly. When he wakes up at, after, after the fair folk have rescued them and left, and, and Tarin's been sick for a while, he, he finds Fluter and, and Gurgi nursing him. And Tarin realizes that in looking for a noble birth, he's been looking for a reason to be proud that has nothing to do with him. Yeah. And so he decides to abandon his quest for his parents and scratch for his worms. Yeah. That, that's my moment of truth. Although there are so many in these books, yeah, yeah. Um, he he continues north to the free comets and in, in, in yeah. near the Logadorn Mountains, and uh, it's this is an area with like no kings or kingdoms, but just independent villages that are ruled democratically. He meets a, a, a riverman named Lonio who basically just builds weirs in a river and gets by on fish and whatever the nets pick Every up out of it. Yeah, scavenging yeah, and like his, his, you know, his ingenuity. Tarin just, you know, this, this kind of life isn't for him, this kind of contingency. But but Lonio tells Tarin that life is like casting a net into a river. It'll mm-hmm. give you what you need, but in unexpected ways. And he teaches them that luck isn't something you have, but something you make. Yeah. Tarin moves on to Hevid the Smith. Uh, and and Hevid, Hevid helps Tarin forge a new sword and tells him he has the, the makings of a fine smith and offers to yeah. teach him. But Tarin's heart just isn't in it. You know, Hevid... Heaven tells him that life is a forge. Face the pounding. Don't fear the proving, and you'll stand well against any hammer and anvil. But Tarn moves on, and he meets Dwivik, the weaver woman, who helps him weave a new cloak and, and tells him he could be a great weaver if he apprentices with her. And she tells him life is a loom where date lives and days intertwine, and wise is he who can learn to see the pattern. He doesn't, he doesn't want that. He doesn't he want that. A, he wants to be a potter. He meets Anlaw the Potter, and 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 here Tarin actually feels a calling, but he can't do it. Yeah, he he, yeah. he doesn't have the talent for it. No, yeah. he's got no. He's got. And no listen, and, and what, this is really interesting. Anlaw oh. never tells Tarin what life is, but he does tell him where to find the Mirror of Lunette. A- after taking a load of Hevid's pottery to another comet, and and while there, standing with them to to defend their 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 homes and lives against Doras bandits who have turned feral and are just raiding villages at this point yeah the, these folks are super grateful and, and in my head canon uh tarn leaves because like marriageable daughters are being lined up in front of him oh yeah for sure <laughs> in my head canon that was totally happening right exactly you know but, but yeah, yeah so he returns to Anlaw and, and and has to take his leave uh he, he goes he goes and he find, he, he goes to the mirror chris so Anla doesn't tell him what life is, but he does no. say he does say. What does he tell him? No, no, it's what Tarin tells him, and I'm going to get to it. Uh, okay, okay, go uh, ahead. Let me get there, Your Honor. You uh, got it. All, all four of his <laughs> teachers offer Tarin not only a living but a rubric for understanding life. Right? Yeah. Or, or Anlaw doesn't seem to offer the latter, but he does. You know what? What this story is ultimately about is. Tarin learning that it's not his birth, but his thoughts, his feelings, and his actions that define him. And the first people he spoke to on this quest, Ordu and Smoit, had both tried to tell him, who your parents are don't matter. That doesn't matter, man. Yeah. You know, you, you are who you are. You're a brave lad. You you could be a king. And, and, and you know, look – it doesn't matter who your parents are. It's such a good lesson for kids that it's been, yeah. uh, it's been taught, you know, 
dozens upon dozens of children's stories, right? Yeah. But Taran's learning a lot more than that in this book. He also learns who he is. Yeah. I, I don't want to ruin the climax when Taran yeah. finds the mirror, but ultimately of the experience, he says to Anlaw, I'll paraphrase here. I, I saw so myself, uh, yeah, a lot of folly, a little wisdom, many good intentions and many intentions left undone. Myself, a man like any other, I am Taran. He's scratched for his own worms. And at this point, Taran's grown up. And from here on out, man, he's going to be asked to bear a lot of responsibilities. A lot of heavy weight. A lot. Chris, I'm going to tell you, when he was like, I I am Taran, I knew I was like minutes away from finishing this book. I had to put it down. I just, I said, I I, I was like, I got to stop. I need a moment. I can't, I can't, I can't keep going. I just have to. I had to process, and that happened a bunch of times in this book. Actually, I had to put it down because it was yeah. just like, "Whoo, that was heavy," you know. So you know, Torin also says that you know he now understands how individual each and every life is, which yeah. I take to reflect Taryn's understanding of the value of life. Yes. So when Torin, you know, realizes that he's no better than Craddock, when he learns these trades. He stands with the comet folk, comet, comet folk against Doris Briggins, and when he makes the friends that he has, he's also learning both the value of life and its meaning. Taran Wander is the story of a young man educating himself for a role he can't even begin to suspect. Yes, yes, yeah. No, it is a remarkable book. It is a remarkable chapter. It's just, it's just so freaking good. It really, really is. But you know what? Here's the thing. As astonishingly good as this book is, and Alexander initially wasn't even going to write it. He was going to go right from Castle of Lear to the High King, and I believe it was his editor was like, you know, you need like another chapter in here to make you feel like he's really earned it. It's like, oh, okay. And so then he kind of stopped and he kind of holy smokes, did they win? <laughs> yeah, right. And kind of shoehorned in this book, which is like probably way more than they ever expected. Like, oh my God, Lloyd, like, <laughs> like you're killing this man. This is awesome. I, I love all of these books. Um, yeah. When I was a kid, this was probably my least favorite because it, it just it's, it, it's hard it's a hard book it's a hard book to read but you know the older i've gotten uh the more i love it the, the more i respect it and I, I i don't think that the high king works without it at all oh no for sure for sure no well, there's there's reasons for that yeah so well look on, on on that note chris do you have anything more to say to kind of button up taron wander before no, i i think i moment? think i got there i think i got there awesome all right because this this brings us perfectly to the High King, and this is Joe's moment. Walk us through the High King, and walk us through the moments in it that really that sing the loudest to you. This series, and most specifically this final installment, are deeply personal to me. I've been a student of leadership all my life. Uh, my degrees are in political science and public administration. I've served in a variety of elected positions. I've spent more than a decade teaching high school students uh, skills and styles of leadership and service. I've read widely on the subject and I've been lucky to have great teachers and great mentors. And yet nothing, nothing I've encountered has come close to what I've learned from Tarn Assistant Pigkeeper. <laughs> Tarn, High King of Pradine. Yeah. And when, I, when I was eight years old. And if I'm being honest, probably every three to five years since then. When yeah. I was a boy, I had dreams of heroism like Tarn. I wanted to oh, skip the horseshoes and go right to the making of wielding of sword and then wielding of swords. I wanted to prove my worth. I was desperate to prove my worth. I wanted to lead, I, to be the one everyone 
turned to, the one everyone trusted, the one everyone followed. What I learned through this masterfully crafted series is that heroism is not glory. Heroism is sacrifice and leadership is not power. Leadership is service. Mm-hmm. The High King is such a brilliant capstone to this series, not because it serves a traditional role of finishing the narrative and answering our questions, but because it so powerfully drives home the lessons to Taran and to us, and it does so with such emotionally earned moments. God, one after another. Taran and his companions are systematically challenged to sacrifice that which they cherish most not just to complete their quest and defeat Iran, but in service to their loved ones. I read this series aloud to my wife when we were first dating 20 years ago. And I read it aloud to my children a few years ago. When we lose Prince Run and Cole, son of Kolfur, the lump in my throat is almost too much to bear. Yeah. These are not standard fantasy collateral damage. No. These are their deaths that grieve us as deeply as they do time. And yet the moment that I almost can't get through comes when, when Fluter smashes his harp and burns it to keep the companions alive. And the one, the one harp string, the one harp string, the unbreakable harp string, no matter what he says for a lie will not break. I, I almost can't get through it. The lump yeah. in my throat is almost too much. How how has that scene not been put on film to just staggering I, effect? I Fluter takes that sing. moment. Fluter takes that moment and he looks at each of them and he and he smashes it over his knee. Yeah. Like that the pathos of that is so powerful. So, so 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 real quick, our heroes are in a race against time, against Iran, Deathlord, and his his undead army. They've got to get back basically to to his to his stronghold. They've got to head off the Deathless Cauldronborn. They, they got to head off the Cauldronborn, right? So they're going over this mountaintop, and they're just it's this such hard going, and they get stuck on top of this mountaintop. They're gonna freeze and die there that night. The weather comes up, they're stuck in this place, and they're in they're socked in by weather, and they they do not have the means to survive. The it's night. all done. It's all done, right? And that's when Fluter, who's got this harp, he's been playing the entire series, right? And this harp, it makes me laugh every time because it's enchanted. And every time he embellishes the truth too much, the harp string just bang, breaks. So, like, he his highest skill is repairing his harp strings because he just can't <laughs> he can't help but varnish the truth, right? But even that, but this harp is all he has, and he without he just like I don't know. He, he gives it up. Gives it, breaks it, and like we'll use it as firewood, and they burn the harp to All stay good. alive. Here so, we go. Joe, back and over that's to you. The theme. In the marshes of Morva and the Black Cauldron, Tarn learns about the price of leadership. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the High King, he learns its cost. Yeah. In leadership, true leadership is a punishing daily choice of service above self. The people of the Free Comets follow Tarn. Not because of some title he bears, but because he worked and lived among them and he earned their trust. Yeah, earned. Earned. Everything Tarin gets is earned. Everything is earned. In the end, he chooses, in the end, in the end, the very end, he's given the choice of eternal life and eternal romping in the fields or labor 
and he chooses to stay and chooses to rule as king, not because he craves glory, but because he has to. It's a debt that he owes to the, to the people and the he, land he loves. He's, he, he can't kill off. Yeah. He becomes king Joe, not because he's the hero, but because he takes responsibility. He takes he responsibility for, he for the whole country. Chris, yeah. he can't do it. He oh, can't. Yeah. He can't sell off to eternal life because he has run seawall on Mona. Right. To build. He, he has the one he promised to help build. He can't. Oh, it remains unfinished. He can't ride off into the sunset knowing the people of Ferdane don't get that same storybook ending. He buried Cole in that shallow grave. He buried Rune. He buried Lonio, son of Loneman. All these people who followed him, and, and he can't. He's given the choice of eternal life and eternal happiness or striving and sorrow. He gives up immortality and fellowship and even the love of his life because of duty. Yeah. And he makes the choice. I didn't understand when I was eight years old. I do now. Yeah. Sometimes I wish I didn't. Well, These books are for children, but everyone should read them, especially... Anyone who claims to understand what it means to lead, yeah. every campaign I've run, every meeting I've chaired, every thorny public issue I've ever tangled with, Tarn has been with me. My deepest hope is that if my moment ever comes, Dernwin will come free of its sheath for me too. You know, you mentioned before that these books were written for children, which is the, which is what we commonly say. But you know, the more I read these and the more I think about them, the more I've come to realize that they weren't written for children. And and the glory of them was that they were written for people who just aren't adults yet. And Alexander knew that. And he wanted to make sure he gave readers something so that as they navigated that treacherous path from childhood to adulthood, they had something that might remind them of these these virtues that we hold dear over the eons, right? And that they really don't they don't really don't tarnish over time. There's an authenticity to this, and there's a real love in it. And I think it's the reason why it, even 60-some-odd years later, it still comes through like a lightning bolt. I mean, it really loses none of its potency. Every meaningful conception of duty, how do you serve and how do you lead, has come back here. And I sit in these budget meetings in my town. Tarn is on my shoulder saying, like, does this serve the greater good? Is this service over self? It's so much about the cost of these things, right? There can be no, and it's not about glory. It's about, like, there's this terrific, noble burden that must be shouldered by our heroes. This thing has to be done. Iran must be stopped. And it all comes at a cost. It's almost too great to bear, right? There's a scene near the end, right? Iran has been defeated. Our heroes are getting their things in order because they're getting ready to leave to go to the summer country. And Taryn's got this choice face facing him. And it should be this time of jubilation, but it's not. Because you know of all the people you lost along the way to get there. At last he rose from his pallet and stood uneasy by the chamber window. The campfires of the sons of dawn had burned to ashes. The full moon turned the sleeping fields to a sea of silver. From far beyond the hills, a voice began to lift in song, faint but clear. Another joined it, then still others. Taran caught his breath. Only once, long ago, in the fair folk realm, had he heard such singing. Now, more beautiful than he remembered, the song swelled in a long flood of melody, shimmering brighter than the moonbeams. Suddenly it ended. Taran cried out in sorrow, knowing he would never hear its like again. 
and perhaps in his own imaginings there echoed from every corner of the land the sound of heavy portals closing. So that's the land he inherits, right? That's the land he's going to rule. Like he knows the glimmer and gleam of magic will not be there for him. And he, and even still, he takes it. You've mentioned before how steeped this whole story feels in Tolkien. A big part of it is this sense of a world that is lessening, you know, that, that you yeah, know, it, yes. it, is, it is being made less by the departure of, of, of wonderful powers and strange people, you know, the fair folk and, and the sons of dawn. And, you know, it, it, it's a world that is constantly being lessened, and that, which is a, a really, uh, you know, medieval outlook, right? The most emotional moments in these books all partake of that Tolkien quality, the unearned grace. You know, when, mm. when Ilanwi turns her ring and gives up her powers. Yeah. Oh. You know the, the choices. The, I, 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 yeah, ugly cry. Like I, I yeah. saw. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yes. And 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 the reason it's so powerful is that you know you're identifying with Tarrant and she's choosing him. And and you know this is a choice. Well, he has earned it. But that's not that's not something you can really earn, right? You know, no. like someone giving up something that powerful for you. You can't earn that. It's a gift. No. And, yes, and, yes. And, and, and you can never deserve such. But that's such the beauty a, of it, like, Chris. Like that chapter is called The Gift. Yes. We think about this concept of leadership as I'm going to run out in front. No, no. Leadership is what can we do together? Leadership yeah. is what's my duty and what's my debt to the people that I serve? I can't think of, you know, like a really a better place for you know, somebody like my son, you know, who really is sort of specking out leadership right now. He's, you know, he's, he's thinking about, he's, you know, in clubs at school that, you know, a yeah. lot of teachers have sort of look at him as like, maybe he could be a leader. Like mm -hmm. where else would you get, you know, a well for him to go back to? I, I can't think right. of a better one. I can't think of a better one. They ought to be handing out these series to people. Oh, like, yeah. You want to run for office? Read this first. This, instruction it, manual. It, your doctor should give it to you like when you show up pregnant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Seriously. <laughs> it's like, here's what to expect and you're expecting. And here's the Chronicles of Perdane where they get to be about 12 years old. Okay. It's your guide for moral, your moral leadership guide. You know, it's, it's, it's just the best. I, I, I mentioned earlier that, that Anlon never told Tarin what life was. Yeah. But at the very end of that book, Tarin says to Anlaw, yeah. Life is a, a net in a river. Life's a forge. Life's a loom. But it's also clay to be shaped. And that, for me, that's the heart of, of, of all of this. Tarin shapes his life with every decision he makes from page one of Book of Three. And what he shapes it into is something that's more noble than any conception of honor that he ever had as a kid. I wish that in our own lives, evil and good were so clearly drawn that we knew when we were confronting evil and when we were fighting for good. I really do. And yeah, yeah. I, I, I wish we chose our leaders by finding the best servants. Yeah. Well, look, I think I, th I think this brings us to our I think this brings us to to, to our final thought. To be honest with you, this is a perfect setup. So look, in 1969, the High King won the coveted Newbery Medal. 
which is the most prestigious award in children's literature. And since then, the Chronicles of Prydain have sold millions of copies since their initial publication, and they're beloved by, by many, right? Yet for all that, this series is also kind of an also-ran in the world of fantasy. Tom was saying, like, I never heard of it. It's not an uncommon thing. A lot of people just haven't heard of this series, right? Last year, in 2020, Time Magazine enlisted the help of a number of kind of current heavyweight fantasy authors to join the Time staff in nominating a slate of the 100 greatest fantasy books of all time. The authors they brought on board did not nominate their own works. And each nomination was then weighted in terms of their, I'm going to quote Time here, quote, their originality, ambition, artistry, critical and popular reception, and influence in the fantasy genre and literature more broadly, all right? Not one of the Chronicles of Prydain made the list, okay? Not one. Uh, and Chronicles of Prydain also didn't make a showing on Time's list of the 100 greatest young adults novels or children's books either, right? Less Time invalidating them entirely. Right, right. Time just blanked it, okay? And a casual look at other best of lists show that the Chronicles of Prydain usually fails to chart. It's often overshadowed by authors like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and T.H. White, as, as well as some of Alexander's own contemporaries, such as Madeleine Langle, Ursula K. Le Guin, and Peter S. Beagle. So this might explain why the Chronicles of Prydain remain somewhat under the radar for a lot of readers today. Alexander wrote his novels, as we said, some 60-plus years ago, and apart from a single ill-fated attempt by Disney, they haven't really been adapted into other forms so that new readers can be introduced to it on a, on a massive scale. And yet, and yet, and I said this before in this podcast, these books are just as relevant now as they were when they were first published. Alexander wrote the Chronicles during a period of prolonged strife and tumult in the United States. It was during the 60s, right? There was the Civil Rights Movement, there's the Vietnam War, presidential and political assassinations, social upheaval, all of it, right? And it was against this particular backdrop that Alexander wrote his tales of classic virtue, where honor, courage, and loyalty are rewarded, and where good prevails over evil. When Alexander received the Newbery Medal in, in 69, he had this to say. He said, At heart, the issues raised in a work of fantasy are those we face in real life. In whatever guise, our own daily nightmares of war, intolerance, inhumanity, or the struggles of an assistant pig keeper against the Lord of Death, the problems are agonizingly familiar. And an openness to compassion, love, and mercy is as essential to us here and now as it is to any inhabitant of an imaginary kingdom. So a half century or more later, as we look upon a world that is beset by disease, conflict, corruption, uncertainty, when so many kinds of evil seem so well poised to prevail, and draw such easy comparisons to the worst villainies that beset Prydain, let us look upon the humble strength of Taran, Alanwi, and their companions and find our own way to live up to their fine example. This has been Moments of Truth. On behalf of myself, Tom, Chris, and Joe, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com.